This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out of the box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 80 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames... May the force be with you. Oh, please. John Papa. Hey, everybody. Lucas Rubelke. Hello. Ward Bell. May the farce be with you. I just love hearing Joe cackle quietly after saying that. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. I think this episode comes out the week of Freelance Remote Comp, so if that's your deal, uh, go check it out. We're also doing React Remote Comp in May if you're interested in that. We also have a special guest this week, and that is Rob Eisenberg. Hey! This is good to have you back, Rob. Do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Because it's been a while. Yeah, so my name is Rob Eisenberg. I am a uh, front-end guy. (laughs) I've been building frameworks and tools, really focused on front-end development for over 10 years now. It's really uh, my passion, trying to help developers build clients you know, that are elegant, solve the problems they're trying to solve, and also really have quality code in the process. So help them down that path, uh, you know, of uh, success. And uh, that's what I do. I worked on a bunch of different libraries, Caliber and Caliber Micro, Durandal, worked a little bit on Angular 2, worked a bit on Angular Material. And now my big thing is Aurelia. And that's what we brought you on to talk about. So do you want to give us kind of the one-minute introduction to Aurelia? Yeah, so uh, Aurelia is basically a next-generation platform for building apps on uh, on any kind of device, whether it's phone, tablet, desktop, whether it's uh, in the browser or out of the browser. It's all based on open web technologies, and uh, it's a component model-driven uh, architecture. We favor convention over configuration. The idea is the framework should 
work for you. It should handle that 80% of scenarios so well that it gets out of your way and you don't even know it's there. So we really try and help developers to write very clean code that where you don't see the framework really in the middle of your code. You just kind of write plain JavaScript and uh, and we try and have a very clean, easy to read HTML syntax. And you put those pieces together according to some very reasonable uh, conventions and you can build really, really amazing apps. So um, we're really excited about what we're doing and uh, we've uh, the last year has really been just a cool experience seeing the community come on board and seeing what people have been building. I have to say that, uh, so my first major programming experience was in Ruby on Rails, which also conforms or uses convention over configuration. And I didn't realize just how powerful that was until I started using some of the other frameworks that don't make any decisions for you. And in a lot of cases, you can work around the conventions, but it's just nice to not have to think about how this is supposed to go together. It's nice to be able to just say, I need this. And so that means that this part of it goes here and this part of it goes there and they plug together this way. And that's all the thinking I have to do. So that's really exciting for me to see in Aurelia. Yeah, I, I love it. I, pretty much everything I've done has been based on that. I was highly inspired by Rails. I was never a Rails developer, but um, you know, my backend experience was .NET and we were building web apps and we were building Windows apps with .NET. And and uh, when Rails was getting popular, I was looking at what they were doing, and I was saying, okay, these ideas are really good. How can they be applied in other places? And so pretty much all the front-end work that I've done in terms of frameworks and tools have tried to take some of those initial ideas and imagine them in different contexts, you know, for Windows development or phone development or, you know, single-page app development. Uh, one thing that I do hear a little bit about convention over configuration is some people are pretty used to being able to set up an app however they want it set up. So do you ever find that people get into Aurelia and then wind up fighting the framework over certain conventions? Uh, there's a couple of key points about building a convention-based system that I've learned over the years. Uh, one is that you have to have good diagnostics into a convention-based system. So, for example, you can uh, understand when things are going wrong. And the second is that Every convention should be overridable. The framework should be designed in such a way where the conventions themselves are implemented in a pluggable way inside the framework so that developers can take control either at the, uh, you know, across the entire app or even on a case by case basis to opt out of those. Because every application you develop is very different. I, I do a lot of consulting. I go into tons of different companies and there's, you know, there are similarities, but every single situation has something unique about it. Um, otherwise, of course, they, they would, you know, they wouldn't build the app. They just pull it off the shelf, you know, for some other vendor. So people have to do strange things, uh, in almost every app they build. And they have some, usually some really good internal reasons for doing that. And you have to let them do that. You have to give them a way to do that, uh, without providing pain. But you want that 80 to 90% of the scenarios to be super easy and simple where they don't have to think about things. But it's really about how you layer. And how you design the framework so that, you know, people can plug in and, and override and control these things. So, Rob, in case our uh, some of our audience isn't quite clear on what convention over configuration means, and particularly in the context of an app, maybe we can illustrate it a little bit, talk about it a little bit. And I'll kick it off by saying, for, for example, I was went to your website, the Getting Started. By the way, you have lovely documentation. Thank you. Uh, and I say that as the guy who's been doing some recently. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I know I look at the router and I see it just says users. 
gives a little directory to it and says users. Uh, and, uh, or I think that's what it was. I can't remember. Uh, now, what does that mean? What does that, uh, how does Aurelia understand that? And how else does convention show up in Aurelia? Sure. Well, with respect to the router, you uh, basically you specify a module ID and you might say users. And that, that again, that's pointing to an ES6 module or a TypeScript module. And so what's going to happen is the router, when the route pattern is matched, it's going to find that module. And it just knows by convention that whatever you have exported from that module is the component that should be rendered. Um, so that's just a simple example of convention. So what we basically tell people is you write a component per file. And this is a very, you know, per module, you know, this is a very common way that people are developing anyways. And so what we're saying is, well, let's teach the framework about that. So you don't have to tell the framework, this exported class is my component. It knows, well, this module exports a component and that's, you pointed the router at it. So I should expect that. Um, so that's, you know, kind of a simple example based off of that router. Um, but we go, you know, a bit farther with that. Again, all very, what we try and have very reasonable conventions. So if you've got this users component, you know, it's a users JS file or a users HTML file. Well, that's going to have your, your component logic, its state and behavior. But we, we want to render that and that's going to need some kind of template of view. And so what we say is, well, you don't need to tell us where to find that or how to find that. If it's in the user's module, then the template is in user's HTML. And so we just find that automatically. Uh, and then we, you know, we instantiate that, compile it, all that work, data bind them together, and then that gets handed back to the router and it, and it renders it. So that's kind of a simple convention for components. It's just a module per component and then an HTML file with the same name but different extension, and it just works. So I didn't have to do an import users or an import anything. Just the fact that I had that module ID that's expressed in the kind of syntax I would use in an import statement will cause it to go and get the users module and find the one true class in there that I need and connect all the dots. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, basically. I mean, uh, with the router, it's very, it's actually similar to the way all components work. So even if you want a custom element, uh, in your HTML, all you do is you, uh, you require it into your view. And then the view engine in Aurelia basically says, okay, they required this module. Let me take a look at it and see what's there. And based off of, you know, the default convention is it's just a component. And so it says, okay, well, this is a component and I know how to find custom elements that, you know, that component renders and it just makes that happen. The idea is you can do a lot of this without ever having to import anything. So you can build whole screens and whole feature areas of an app, and you actually don't see Aurelia anywhere. You don't see any import statements. You're just writing plain ES6 classes. Now, practically in real-world apps, you do bring in some imports because you probably want to use some HTTP client to make requests or something like that. But the idea is that it stays out of your way as much as possible, and there's just a couple of very simple conventions that let it do that for you so you don't have to get bogged down in remembering APIs or importing things or and you don't have to just write that code or even see it in your code uh, and that just makes things quicker faster it's it's very easy to learn in that sense and people usually find it's pretty intuitive because again the conventions are really based off of practice you know it makes sense to have a component per js file and a separate html template file and so uh, we just say well we're going to we're going to teach the framework about this common practice so, and well, let, let me, it do that for you. Let me interrupt you a little there because I want to just make sure I got you right. So I'm inside of a, a component of some sort, and 
normally, if we want to use other features, we have to import those features in ES6 or TypeScript because we need to go get those things so we can actually refer to those types. So if you're using a ReLU with TypeScript, how do you avoid all those import statements there just with conventions? So I think it's important to see uh, components in the two parts that they are in Aurelia. There's the TypeScript part in your case, talking of TypeScript, and then there's the HTML part. So from the perspective of the TypeScript part, if you actually wanted to use our APIs, like the HTTP client, you would import that just like anything else. Okay. But if you want, if that component represents an HTML element in your markup, you don't have to tell the framework that that component is an HTML element. You gotcha. don't have to provide any sort of metadata. The convention basically you know, are a set of kind of heuristics for identifying what exports mean to the framework. You know, th- is this thing that you exported a custom element? Is it a custom attribute? Does it plug into our data binding system in some way? You know, is it a, what we call value converter? There's these different uh, types of resources, we call them. You uh, created a value converter again? Yeah. It's oh, man. <laughs> My silver light and XAML days are coming back. <laughs> it's uh, it's better than than the XAML equivalent. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, there's basically in in Aurelia views, there's different kinds of resources you can use to construct your view. I mean, there's normal HTML that you use, and everything's represented as that. But you can have custom elements and custom attributes and things that plug into the binding system. You know, for example, in Angular, you have filters, right? So that's probably the closest thing to a, a value converter in Aurelia. So these are things you would use in your view, and you require them into your view, and the framework just knows, based on some conventions, it looks at the module, and it looks at what you're exporting, and it says, oh, this is a custom element, or oh, this is a custom attribute, or oh, this is a value converter. And so you don't have to configure it to know what that is. Now, you can always take control. You can always provide metadata, change things, or if you just want to be explicit because you like that way of programming, you can always do that. Uh, but if you follow these simple set of conventions, you don't have to configure the framework, if you will, to understand what those things are. So can we talk just a little bit about that configuration, you know, like the dark side of convention? What's it like to configure versus go with the conventions? I so and- wanted you to say to convent. <laughs> <laughs> to configure instead of convent. Yeah, it depends on what you want to do. So if you want to change things at the app uh, level across the whole app, like say, for example, um, instead of, you know, component foo JS and foo HTML being the conventional kind of, you know, two parts of the component, you want to keep all your views in a views folder. And so you want foo JS to map to f- the views, you know, whack foo JS or foo HTML, right? Well, there's actually a, a view locator service in the framework. You can resolve it and you can basically override a method to write custom code to tell it how to transform a module ID into its view ID. Now, I was just going to say that will change it across the whole framework. So if you just want to have your own framework-wide convention, you can do that. Uh, you can have whatever logic in there you know you want to have. But you can also... You know, on a per component basis, you would import some decorators. And so we use the ES 2016 proposal for decorators to describe components when you want to deviate from the convention. So you could, you implement the use view decorator and you would just on the component, you would say, well, this component uses this view and you give it a relative path uh, from the module to the view that it should use or an absolute path to. And then you've configured just that one thing that you want to change. Um, I imagine there's a lot of art to that, to balancing out, well, this, we've already got a convention here, 
uh, we'll make need to go and configure it. What's the right way to make this not feel like, oh, crap, now that I want to do something different, I've got to dig deep into the depths of the manuals to figure out how exactly to override this default. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, again, with the convention-based framework, when you adopt the framework, you kind of at least tacitly agree that you kind of like this way of doing things. So you're not going to usually probably alter them massively. But the framework is designed to have all these pluggability points that you can override. And then it's really a matter of, okay, what makes sense for your team? What makes sense for your application? Are you worried about new developers coming in and knowing a release conventions and being you know, thrown off by your custom conventions or, you know, maybe that's not a problem or is there some unique aspect to your application where even politically within the organization, you just have to do things a certain way, but you still want to kind of leverage, you want to let the framework still work for you. So it's those kind of scenarios, I think that would drive people to customize broadly. I think what we try and get people to do is just stay with the convention as much as possible, just like in the Rails world. Um, you know, you, you get the most bang from your buck for following this simple set of conventions. And again, the conventions aren't insane. You know, they're basic, simple naming conventions and a little bit of organizational convention. And that's it. There's not a lot of them. Uh, having too many conventions is a problem. I actually know this from experience. And so basically the trick is from our perspective to find the minimal number of conventions that are easy to pick up and learn and remember that provide the maximum number of you know productivity and benefit and that reflect real world patterns of usage. So how often do you find that you're changing your conventions based on feedback from the community? Uh, so far, I don't think we've made any changes in the last year from a perspective of, of the conventions. Yeah, like, you know, a like lot of what I've learned there is from previous frameworks. So I had a pretty solid idea of of kind of what they would be. Yeah, I remember you're... going through uh, Durandal quite a bit with you, Rob, when in our early days and uh, the other framework you had. And there were a lot of conventions in there. And there were some that I remember you ended up tweaking just because it made more sense to give them a little more control over that. Is that the kind of stuff that you're talking about you learned from or, is, or have you gone a different direction? No, absolutely. I mean, all that experience with Durandal, I learned some. I learned some, probably most of the audience won't know Caliber Micro, but you and Ward will know that. There was Caliber Micro had more conventions. So that was kind of a because lesson. Because we're old. <laughs> different platforms, but that was kind of that was kind of a lesson of oh, there's probably too many conventions here, you know. And so I learned that kind of thing. I learned, uh, you know, over over the last ten years, I've been basically building very similar types of frameworks and work with a lot of companies. And so you kind of just by virtue of experience and going into these different organizations, seeing the challenges, seeing what worked and what didn't work over the years, you kind of evolve that understanding of, you know, what are a reasonable set of conventions for productivity. And so that's why I say I just I try and learn from all those experiences. And I think that in a really, uh, you know, that's just my latest kind of understanding of the best way to do these. I try and with the framework, you know, part of what we're trying to do is to take, you know, our entire development team, all of our experiences and really uh, encode them literally, you know, into this library. So then the community can benefit from that experience more broadly. And so part of that learning and conventions, that's how it manifests itself. So you've obviously been involved, as we've spoken, or said so already, with a lot of different frameworks, building different frameworks. 2015, and I think in many ways, was like the year of the framework. Even though we saw, we saw a lot of explosion before, this 2015, I think, has been a huge, React really hit the ground running. 
Uh, Angular 2 was announced. Elm has become more popular. Cycle.js was announced. Uh, Aurelia, I don't I don't know that it was, your initial loss was in 2015. It was probably earlier, right? But Aurelia's begun making a bunch of headway in 2015. What was that like for you uh, being involved in building a framework to be putting out your framework at a time when we're seeing a big explosion in the framework world? Well, actually, it's pretty exciting. And uh, I mean, I think that explosion signifies what's happening in the industry timing-wise that the, with, the, with, with the web platform in general, people are realizing its power, its capability, its flexibility. And so then they're looking into doing the kinds of things that have been done, you know, for example, on desktop clients more historically, and they're running into the different issues and the challenges. And that probably explains this explosion of frameworks is people trying to address all these issues and everyone's got different experience and, you know, coming from a different uh, cultural, I mean, team cultural perspective and all this. For me, it was exciting to put out Aurelia because I do feel that when it comes to things like convention over configuration, there isn't a lot out there. The only other one that I know of that does that is probably Ember. So for me, I felt that Aurelia was actually a really important, from that perspective alone, a really important addition to what was happening in the web space, that we represent this development strategy and everything that had kind of been learned through uh, Rails and other frameworks that adopted this, that we basically said, hey, let us imagine this in the context of a modern front-end framework, and let's see what that looks like. And so I, for us, it was exciting because while there was a lot of things going on, there was nothing quite like Aurelia, and we felt that was an important contribution, you know, if anything, a very important contribution to make in the space. You right. know, it's exciting to see because, I mean, I know some people and that that love Ember, love Ember to death. And the thought of using React, you know, I've tried React and I hate it. And I tried Angular and I hate it. And I tried this other thing and I hate it. Well, that's fine. You know, then they can go and they can use Ember. And the people who have some bad experience with, you know, all of the frameworks I just named, they can try out Aurelia and see if that works for them. And so by having some terrific options out there, it's just really exciting to see. Even though we do kind of hear about another framework, it seems like every month or every week. Uh, you know, at the same time, there are options. And if you're used to a certain paradigm or you have a problem that just doesn't fit one of the frameworks, then you switch. Absolutely. No. I mean, if you think, if you look at the server side, just think how many server side frameworks there are. And there's more always coming. And and there's a lot of big ones. Um, you know, there's a lot of very widely used server side frameworks. And I think that just reflects the diversity. And I think having those options is really important uh, because every business is unique. They need to be able to make the choice that makes the most sense based on their constraints. And I, I, I certainly understand the JavaScript fatigue, and it's maybe because it's been so condensed in the last year or two. But I do think it's actually a good sign of a healthy ecosystem and the evolution of the web. And I think it's nice that we have those options to choose from. Do you feel like the days of the one dominant framework are over? I hope so. I mean, I think that it's... <laughs> No, I mean, in all, in all honesty, it's actually not very healthy for us um, as web developers when there is only one dominant framework. Yeah, think about all the years of Java and .NET and how they've gone back and forth. And I believe they actually pushed each other. Yeah, I mean, we mm -hmm. want the competition. We want the variety. We want the innovation that comes from that. We also, when it comes to issues of control, we want to make sure that no, just like with the web and with web browsers, we want to make sure that no one vendor 
kind of controls uh, the direction that things are going. We want to, uh, so there's issues of kind of software freedom there in a loose sense. I mean, there's all, all kinds of things that I think that benefit there being multiple strong options in the space. One of the forces that drove uh, or entered the framework world this um, in this last year or so was this idea about unidirectional data flow, and I'm curious about your thoughts about about that uh, and how it does or doesn't play with uh, within Aurelia. And 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 by the way, in broaching this question, I want to say that I'm a, a unidirectional data flow. I wouldn't call it a skeptic, but I thought I think it's sort of over. I'll just lay it out there that it's not like you have to love unidirectional data flow or you're uh, or you're stupid. I don't feel that that's true. But anyway, that's why it's an open question for me and an open therefore an open question uh, I'd put to you. Sure. Uh I mean I think that um if you build a system that has unidirectional data flow, I I would say that's that's a positive characteristic. I think it deals with issues of simplicity and understanding. If uh you have that characteristic in your system, it probably will be easier to understand. However, I think we also have to be very realistic about applications. And, I, and I've read some meeting notes, and I have the link, but I remember there was a meeting between the Angular 2 team and the React team where they talked about reactive programming and unidirectional data flow. And, I, and interestingly enough, one of the things that came out of that meeting is that the Angular 2 team and the React team both agreed that in complex applications, there will inevitably be cycles. And so you cannot actually have unidirectional data flow in very complicated applications, or at least it becomes so difficult to accomplish that the effort is not worth it. So I think it's a positive characteristic. I think that what we need to think about is trying to strive for things like that. And and this means, you know, keeping things encapsulated, thinking about the side effects of various things that you're doing. And, um, you know, some of this comes in a response to, the way that Angular 1 and Ember 1 was used, the way the data binding systems were used. So often developers would, not because they were guided that way in particular by the authors of those frameworks at all, but they were just trying to solve problems. They would often abuse data binding by using it as a messaging system rather than as a a system of local synchronization within a particular component, which is really what it's supposed to be used for. And so that that abuse of the binding system that, frankly, they probably just, most developers just didn't really know better, that, that abuse of it in that case created these crazy kinds of side effects from data binding. And I think the unidirectional data flow movement is a bit of a response to that because looking at a system that uses data binding in that way can be ex- it can be extremely difficult to understand a system like that. The trick is to understand what data binding is good at and use it for that thing and do not use it for other things. You know, uh, data binding is great for getting a view and its view model to communicate locally with one another. And the bulk of that should still be unidirectional. In other words, from in this case, from the model into the view. Uh, but you, they, you know, two-way data binding is extremely useful for basic forms type scenarios. And it actually gets really painful, I think, to do some of these user input type things without something like that. I mean, you can always do it, right? But you end up writing a lot of boilerplate code. So it makes those scenarios really easy. But what you don't want to use it for is when you really want an event aggregator or a published subscribe mechanism. In that case, you need to call that out architecturally. And, you know, be very explicit about those kind of things in your architecture. And, and you know, with React, one of the things that came along with that w- w- is uh, Flux. And Flux is really a PubSub-based concept. And so what they did is they called it out and they said, you know, 
as part of our architecture, this is what we're telling you to do with respect to cross-component communication. And, uh, and so, th- you know, that all goes, goes into that unidirectional data flow thing. But I think it's a matter of really understanding our tools, using them appropriately, and um, calling out the explicit parts of our architecture, you know, like that. And that, that makes the whole system easier to understand. So we, we talked a lot about you know, this explosion of frameworks in, in 2015 into 2016. And I really like what you said, uh, Rob, about that it's a good thing to have this vibrant ecosystem with varying opinions. And I think that with, you know, for instance, with React and specifically Redux, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that pattern that I've kind of taken that idea and I've applied it to my Angular apps. And it's, it's all the better uh, because of that. And so I think that, you know, taking kind of these predominant ideas and, and really thinking about them and then applying them in different places is a good thing. Um, if you were to articulate, what would be kind of your big idea for Aurelia that you would encourage maybe other framework developers to, to kind of look at and adopt in their frameworks? Would it be convention over configuration or um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think convention over configuration is a means to the end, which and the end is the thing that I would encourage framework developers to think how to cheat to achieve. And that end is to allow developers to write as clean uh, a vanilla JavaScript as possible in their apps. In other words, to minimize framework intrusion. One of the things that's really cool about it really is you can build a lot of screens and components and you are just writing a plain, you know, ES 2015 class with, I mean, it's just properties, methods. There's nothing exceptional about it. And uh, so I would really just encourage framework authors to think, how can we help developers to write code in this way? Because that's better for them as developers. It means their code base is going to be much more long lived. You know, the, 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 the web standards are going to be around longer than any of our frameworks. And the closer they keep, their components and their business models and everything that they're writing to being more vanilla, the less trouble they'll have migrating between versions of frameworks, the less trouble they'll have adapting as the web adapts, the longer that code base, the longer life that code base will have. Uh, And those are all really good qualities, especially when you think about the business impact of doing major rewrites or, uh, upgrades and all this sort of thing. So, but the more frameworks can kind of get out of the way and enable this vanilla JavaScript programming model, the better it is for developers and, and the businesses that they work for. And that's something that we've worked really, really hard with in Aurelia. And I would love to see a lot more, uh, frameworks think carefully about how they can enable that. Do you have the opinion that you're, are you a big fan of what React has done where he's kind of said, we're trying to put in as little syntax is possible that has anything to do with react you're just learning javascript to do react you're not learning react so much to do react well the thing with react is it's kind of a view it's takes care of that view piece a lot more and what's interesting about it is using jsx you i actually see this as kind of a very intrusive thing because you have a what you have is you know it's a mixture of javascript and an HTML variant basically together. So those components are very, very tied strongly to the framework. Now, if you build, and I'm not a React, React developer, but I think that you could interpret this the same way you would any view language for any framework, in which case, you know, Angular 1, Angular 2, Aurelia, Ember, each of us have our view languages that are very tied. So it's not a point against React, in my opinion, if 
you use it as the view part of the equation. And if you decouple your components and put your business logic and uh, other things in other places. And um, I think it's quite possible that you could have a very nice vanilla JS type programming model with React if you put that kind of constraint upon yourselves to really think of the React code as being essentially your HTML code, essentially your view, and you were careful to separate those concerns. I think frameworks like Cycles are really interesting, or Cycle, is that right? Yeah. I was watching a video the other day, and I was really intrigued with the purity of it from a perspective of functional programming model. Like, if there was the if there was the functioning pro, pro functional programming equivalent of Aurelia out there, it's probably Cycle. It looked super super clean and really straightforward, easy to understand, and for the most part, it was kind of vanilla JavaScript that you were writing. So, um, and I just hope you know, I hope more more frameworks would think about that, take that seriously into consideration. And I think it also can depend on how you use a framework. And so I would also encourage framework authors to try and guide their communities in such a way that they can get the bulk of their code into this vanilla JS world and not be tied to, you know, the particular framework. So one of the things that we mentioned earlier is tool fatigue. You kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier and, that's definitely a topic that as framework creator you've got to deal with, right? So yeah. how do you how do you combat this? It's become a hot topic at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. How do you combat this growing trend that when JavaScript is becoming way more complex, we're putting a lot more pieces. ES6 now requires a build because browsers don't support it. Mm-hmm. ES2016, you're talking about decorators. I mean, you're just yep. even getting farther out there, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of, I don't know if backlash is the right word, but there's a lot of discussion about the community about how the tools are in even worse shape now than they were years ago because of how many much more complex it is to do anything. So as a framework author, how do you deal with that? Yeah, this is a really difficult issue. You know, right now we're in this transitional period. I mean, um, it's like, yes... 2015 is, you know, locked, but it's not implemented everywhere. I mean, it's implemented in pieces in different browsers. And, but we all want to use it because we can clearly see, you know, all these benefits. So then we have to bring the compiler into the mix. And it's the moment that we bring the, if we start using real modules, you know, really as 2015 modules, then we got to think, okay, how are our modules loaded? Then we, we either need a module loader or we need a bundler like Web, Webpack. And then the minute we bring those tools into the equation, we're doing unit testing say with a tool like Karma, okay, well, it has to now load our code. So then we have to have the proper Karma plugin to work with whatever loadery thing that we picked, right? And, you know, on and on and on and on and on. Um, is a loadery this is, thing a real thing? Yeah, loadery thing is a real thing. Uh, Look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> I use the loadery thing. I think this is the most painful part of the process right now. And I'm not sure if I have a a good solution for it. Our approach has been to try and just hug the standards um, as much as possible so that over time, the platform itself will address these issues. Right now, we're in this interim period, and it's real painful to when there's a lot, especially breaking changes coming to these tools, and some of the specs are still in flux. And you want to do right by your community by trying to point them in the right direction. But I mean, I'm looking out there even in the last week and going, there is no right direction. There, there isn't. I, like, there's not a direction I can point anyone in that I feel is going to be a safe bet, 
even for the next nine months with respect to some of this tooling. And so what we have to do is, as you know, framework authors, we have trying to make our best recommendations to people to stick to the standards as closely as possible so we can support as wide a variety of tooling options as possible. We try and guide people and we, you know, we're trying to, with respect to Aurelia, you know, we're trying to work with the toolers. So we're working, we're constantly in conversation with Guy Bedford, who works on JSPM and System.js, saying, hey, look, these are our scenarios. This is where things are working, not working. This is, you know, this this is what the upgrade process has been like, blah, 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 blah. And we're also, you know, we're working with Webpack people saying, you know, how can we support you guys? And then there's several other open source projects out there that are building these plugins for Babel or for things like Karma and Protractor and these different tool, you know, testing tools. And we're trying to contribute back to those projects. And so uh, I think it's a hard place to be in terms of tooling right now. It helps to stick close to the standards and it helps to work together to try and collaborate and, you know, submit back to the people that are trying to maintain these tools and build these tools. I really do wish it could be you know, with Aurelia, obviously, we try and focus a lot on simplicity. We have these conventions. We want to stay out of your way. And this issue of tooling has been the biggest barrier for us to really achieving our vision for simplicity. And I readily admit it's way too complicated. And the fact that you have to even talk about all this stuff in order to help somebody get started, you know, with modern JavaScript development, I think it's a problem. I think it will probably work itself out over time. But in the meantime, we have to deal with it. And so collaboration, standards, basis, also, you know, we're trying to think, okay, is there something we can build, you know, but I've always been hesitant to like, man, I don't want to build a module loader. I really don't want to build a package manager. I I know that these things are huge projects in their own. So you want to try and support the community. But every other week I'm back and forth because uh, I see the pain. And so I'm not sure I have a really good answer, but we have to keep working together, keep communicating, contributing back. We try and